We are very excited to announce we're hosting our first Meetup in the Left Field 2022 on October 21st in Columbus, Ohio. We have Zoomed together for two years, and it is beyond time to meet face-to-face. The primary purpose of this meeting will be to meet your fellow left fielders, as well as to meet and interact with some of our community's favorite sponsors and professionals. The plan is to host a special infielder event Thursday night, October 20th, which will include appetizers, drinks, and the opportunity to connect with your Zoom friends. That will be followed by a full day of networking and meetings on Friday, October 21st. The cost to attend the event is $250. Members of the infield community will get a $100 discount and a free month of membership if they sign up before September 15th. We hope to see you soon in the left field. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively think differently. Let's go. One of the things that I always teach people on short-term rental university to do is build it for yourself. So if you've always wanted a lake house, go get your lake house, put it on Airbnb uh, during the off season, or if it's not rented, you increase your quality of life and going back to sort of experience and peak state and everything, your quality of life is enhanced and you're making some money. So everything that we're doing at Stom Capital is something that I like personally, and my bet is that other people will like it too. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to have Richard Fertig with me. He's the founder of Stomp Capital and the founder of Short-Term Rental University. So we're talking about short-term rentals today. So Richard, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited too. And the way we usually start is for you to tell your journey, how you got into finance, to real estate, and then how you finally landed to uh, short-term rentals. Okay, cool. Well, it's actually all one and the same. And it starts with sort of my personal identity, which is I view myself very much as an investor. And so my investment thesis started the short-term rental exploration about six, seven years ago. And let me share with you my background, why I consider myself an investor, and then lead into why I discovered the short-term rental emerging asset class. And then we can talk about why I think it's like the right place to be 
now. So I graduated Cornell in 1991. And at the time I had skipped a grade. So I decided to go skiing for a year and just get a hundred days of fresh powder under my belt. And I very much value um, life experiences and also thinking that in those life experiences, you get creativity and excitement and live in this peak state environment. So even back then, I was always valuing experiences and I actually did something about it. When I finished that, I, I went to work at the Chicago Board of Trade as a clerk. And what's kind of interesting about clerking and then ultimately a trader is as a market maker, we make two-sided markets. So I don't really care what the asset is and I don't really care whether I'm buying or selling. And it creates a great discipline for both risk management and making two-sided markets, meaning at any given point in time, I will buy this asset at X and I'll sell it at Y. Very different than the way most investors think where generally speaking, they're long biased and they're long only. I had the discipline and ingrained in me to manage risk and you must also sell. So very much enjoy that. I became a trader faster than anyone else at my firm. Within 45 days, I was running principal capital and making risk on trades and also risk off trades. And I very much enjoyed that, but I didn't really enjoy the physicality of the trading pits. I mean, it's a brutal environment. In fact, they don't even exist anymore. But I wanted to continue finance and, and trading and creating really profitable trades, but just from an office type environment. So I went to business school and I was fortunate enough to graduate from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania in 1998. And I had multiple routes and opportunities. I was at the time an intern at Swiss Bank, at their O'Connor group, which is a preeminent derivative shop. And we were working on exotic derivatives. And while that was super interesting, I had an offer also from the Blackstone group to join and run was the first associate hired into what was known as the Blackstone Alternative Asset Program. And really what that was, was $1.1 billion of the founders' capital. Pete Peterson, Steve Schwartzman, and some of their partners wanted to have the following outcome, equity-like returns with bond-like volatility. And back then, it sounded uh, too good to be true. And for any investors that are listening, that's like the holy grail. If you can do that consistently over time, you win. And by way of exploration and example, that same group that I joined in 1998 with $1.1 billion is now north of $70 billion. And I think it's the largest alternative asset fund to funds platform. So there was a lot of institutional interest in that sort of investment and methodology. And we did really quite well. I was recruited in a couple of years later by the Ramius Capital Group, and they wanted to do the same sort of investment, take advantage of that same opportunity. I joined them. I was the fourth employee. They had $110 million of principal capital, and the founders there were Peter Cohen, ex-CEO of Shearson Lehman Brothers, and I worked directly for Tom Strauss, who was ex-president of Solomon Brothers. So $110 million of their capital, and over the next eight years, I ultimately rose to become co-head of investments in the fund of funds group. And we had about 55 people reporting into me. So have a lot of experience finding alternative assets, differentiated strategies, not crowded trades. And the reason that we do that is the following. Most people take a look at what's working now and they back, they have all the back data and they project simply that what worked in the past will work in the future. And we had a slightly different approach where we actually think that's very dangerous, right? Unless you have very strong, compelling reason to believe that the past is going to continue to repeat itself. We believe that cycles are evident and valuations matter. And so consequently, we try and find uncrowded trades where capital isn't yet flowing. And we have forward-looking investment theses about what the world will look like 
in a year and three years and five years. And our basic premise to manage risk is if we get to these asset classes or these opportunities or these trades before others do, and we're right, then they too will find it and they will start to bid it up and we ride the appreciation wave up. And so consequently, we're doing exactly what we're attempting to do, which is have low risk and high returns. And when trades start to become crowded, we're actually selling into that, right? And we're finding the next uncrowded trade. So all of that is to say, we have a slightly different view of the world and we try and find opportunities earlier than others. And we try and avoid crowded trades because in our experience, generally they mean revert and people that get in late could lose money. So a lot of the things that have been working extremely well, and I'll be the first to admit I completely missed it. I didn't like multifamily for an extended period of time, largely because of the amount of institutional capital flowing into the space and the compressed cap rates. And you know that has gone on longer than I would have anticipated. And I'm the first to say that I was wrong and or missed that. But missing is okay. What's not okay is losing money. And I'll never forget Steve Schwartzman on the first day of the job when he said, you know, you're helping us run $1.1 billion of our own capital. He also underscored, do not lose money, right? So compounding really works very well as long as you have your principal intact and you can continue to compound. But once you start losing money, it's very hard to break even and then you have to make up the, the losses. So missing an opportunity is not a big deal. Losing money is a very big deal. And so consequently, We missed the multifamily run in favor of what I consider to be a much more accretive risk-adjusted return in the short-term rental space. And the basic premise there is we're buying properties that are on comps, right? So like what Mr. and Mrs. Jones paid for their house across the street, and yet it's in essence a business that's generating 2 to 3x, which is what we're currently seeing right now, versus a 12-month lease. And the reason there is because vacancy risk is mispriced. So there's more demand, less vacancy, and higher rates than people fear. And we're getting paid handsomely to take the other side of the trade, which ties in nicely to what I said earlier as a market maker. I don't care whether I'm buying or selling. I'll take the other side of the trade if the money's good enough. So in this particular case, we're making two and a half to three times more than a long-term lease. And we think we're at the very early stages as almost no institutional capitals come into the space. And we anticipate we're positioning our investors in Stomp Capital ahead of the big wave of money that will come into it. And by way of example, my prior employer, the Blackstone Group, is now one of the largest single family home renters via invitation homes, where just a few years ago, that wasn't a true statement. So things can change really quickly. And the reason they change quickly, the impetus is because compressed cap rates in one asset class force them to go look at for more yield somewhere else because they either have obligations to their pensions or to their LPs or anything else. So we are positioned very intelligently and taking advantage of this opportunity long before the masses. So we intend to ride the wave as more and more institutional capital comes in. So investor first, we have a contrarian approach to investing. We believe that it lowers our risk and maximizes our return. And then we just sort of pull people, tell the story, show what's happening and more often than not, we're correct and exactly what we anticipate happens. That's a great start. Just to make sure everyone understands we're all talking about the same things here. You mentioned alternative 
assets. And can you talk about what you mean by alternative assets? Because you have history in, in all kinds of different markets and different people have different you know words for things. Can we just get some clarity on that? Yeah. So alternative assets, what, what we did at the Blackstone Group and at Ramius Capital was anything that was not public, right? So an LP investment in a private equity firm is an alternative asset. Venture capital is alternative. We would look at things like convertibles and commodities and just things that were not really mainstream in terms of how people expressed views of the world. Okay. And then you talked about uncrowded trades. And I like that term. How do you find an uncrowded trade? Like the short-term rental is a great example of that. And I'm not saying you're moving on to the next thing yet, but eventually Airbnb and the STR is going to get crowded, right? So how do you find that uncrowded trade and how do you know when you have found it? So the way that we start our investment methodology is by a top-down view of the world. So most investors that I've met start with a bottom-up selection. They find, let's just use a, a building. They find a building, they like it, and they underwrite it, and they say, okay, well, here's what it generated NOI-wise in the past, and I anticipate it'll do it again next year. And in many cases, people actually increase those projections. I think it'll grow at 3% a year, right? So like, if it did that in the past, it's going to do not only that, it's actually going to be better in, in the future. Some people try and add some value to it and make it even more. But that's the average investor starts with the bottom-up uh, selection. We start with a top-down view of the world. And what that means is we take a look at mega trends, And let me share some that would work for the short-term rental hypothesis, which is like work from anywhere. We've anticipated that people would be remote working. I've worked remotely for more than a decade. And COVID wasn't the cause for work from home. It was just the accelerant. So that trend was something that we had identified earlier. And we still believe it's in the early days and people that are building campuses like Apple and great employers like Goldman Sachs, they're literally struggling to get high quality employees back in the office because nobody really wants the commute. It's not so much that they dislike the office, but nobody likes the commute. And so consequently, we think work from home continues to express a, a very viable investment thesis. So we start with what's the world going to look like in the future, whether it's one year, three years, or five years out, we don't have much more visibility than that. And then what we try and do is express that view, like what does it change? What does that mean? What happens? And so in another asset class that I don't invest in, but maybe some of your listeners do, industrial, you would say, hey, I want to have warehouses near metro areas because the advent of Amazon and all this overnight delivery, like these industrial warehouses outside of metro areas are likely mispriced today because they're not filled with Amazon Prime. But if I'm right, that sort of more and more people are going to take advantage of that, these warehouses would be ideal. And so you just start to figure out ways to express your view of the world. The other thing that I spend a fair amount of time at is looking at where institutional capital is flowing, right? So you can see how much they're buying in, say, multifamily and in industrial. You can see what the supply looks like. And there's a tipping point. When there's more demand than there is supply, prices start going up. And if you're early and that price is going up, it might still be a good trade. But if you're getting to the place where cap rates are super compressed and you're at five, four, three, in my personal opinion, and I'm the first to say I was wrong about multifamily, it went far more compressed than I would have anticipated. Now, the dynamic that I search for is reversed. In my personal opinion, you're doing taking high risk for low reward. And we seek the exact opposite, low risk for high reward. So it can be measured and it is quantitative. And then the art is in really being able to express these forward-looking views and then monetizing them. Yeah, that's interesting. So you mentioned the institutional capital. Are you seeing that come into short-term rentals? Because short-term rentals is clearly becoming more popular. Last year, 
we were looking around for opportunities to invest as passive investors in syndications, right? And we were finding it very hard to find anybody who was doing that. Now, there's more and more operators that are pivoting to this. So it's not too late, I don't think. But when does the institutional capital come in and how long does it take to really start those cap rates compressing? So we're starting to see some cap rates compress in the, again, the crowded part of the short-term rental space. And so what I mean by that is, again, we, we view the investment opportunity as a variety of different flavors. So in ice cream, you've got vanilla and chocolate and strawberry, and it's all ice cream, but it's expressed differently. The average person that's investing in the short-term rental space is, is literally looking at backward-looking data available on AirDNA, and they're all buying the exact same thing. So for instance, I think the Smoky Mountains, Cabins in Gatlinburg, Best in Florida, all the usual suspects are crowded. And so consequently, we have no interest. We have no bid. We're not invested there. What we're looking for are the undiscovered gems and the opportunities that nobody else is investing in. And then to circle back to your original question, there's almost no institutional capital in the space right now at all. And I think that we continue to have dialogue with small family offices and some institutional investors who are interested, following, learning more. They don't really know how to enter for two primary reasons. One is it's operationally challenging. That said, when there's enough money at work, the Blackstone Group and others, they figure out those operational challenges, much like they did when they started Invitation Homes. So the operational challenge isn't enough to keep them out. The thing that keeps them out right now is regulatory risk, and there's not enough scale. So what we're doing at Stom Capital is addressing both of those. We take, in our opinion, de minimis to zero zoning risk, and we're building an institutional portfolio that will be somewhere around $350 million of equity with conservative leverage, it should bring us to about a billion dollars, which is now sort of the entry point for an institutional investor, because much less than that doesn't really move the needle and it's not really worth it. Their biggest challenge, as I think everybody knows, is to actually allocate the amount of money that they have. So it's a really good problem to have, but it's a problem nonetheless. And they wouldn't be interested in taking Stomp out at 50 million because it's de minimis, it's a rounding error. Why bother? 500 million, it becomes a little more interesting. And at a billion dollars, now it's something that's meaningful as a starting point. So they will start to invest, in my personal opinion, when there's portfolios that are interesting, performing well, that are of size that actually moves the needle on their balance sheet. And I would be remiss to suggest, if I didn't suggest, that I anticipate we'll be the first fund of that size and of that institutional quality. And we are actually building this for an exit to my former employer or Starwood Capital, somebody like that, that says short-term rentals are eating traditional lodging and hospitality market share every single day. Why don't the hotels do it themselves? And that's due to culture. The established never disrupt themselves. The incumbent never are the disruptors. It's new people that come into the space. And that's because of the culture. If you run a traditional hospitality asset right now, and there's a problem, the solution involves labor. You go and you hire somebody else or you cross train or do whatever, but you throw labor and capital at it. And in the short-term rental space, we have to be more proactive, not reactive. We have to think forward. And the way that we do it at Stomp is I think the future of short-term rental investing is we niche down. We know who's coming, why they're coming, what they want to do, what they don't want to do. And we provide all these a la carte amenities that they can add or not add. So they pay for what they want. They don't pay for what they don't want. We have a centralized concierge. And so we create a custom-made boutique sort of resort experience in our short-term rentals, which the average short-term rental host doesn't do at all today. But they'll have to learn to do it, I think, to keep up. 
Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. Hey, Left Fielders, it's Matt Piccini, your backstage guide to passive investing. I love sharing what I've learned about passive investing, which frees you up to do the things you really care about every day. If you'd like to improve life for yourself, your family, and leave your corner of the world a little better than you found it through win-win investment opportunities, then let's connect. I can help you transform your life and bring your priorities out from behind the curtains. Set up a meeting with me at Pacheni.com. That's P-I-C-H-E-N-Y.com. You mentioned there were operational challenges to some of the institutional capital and others getting into this. Can you address what some of those challenges are? So let me take a step back. I launched Short-Term Rental University, the YouTube channel. So anybody who's listening to this should um, go. I've got six plus years of videos, 500 plus videos, 5 million minutes watched or all sorts of stuff that I can't believe that we created, but it's there. You can listen to my forecast, my predictions, my hypotheses, the theses, and you can decide whether or not I was right or wrong, but it's all there. The, the challenges are not in doing what I call STR 2.0, they're in doing STR 3.0. So in order to have your listeners understand what that is, let's just take a minute here and give you a little bit of history. When Airbnb launched a decade ago, and that's literally the time frame that we're talking about, and I've been doing this now about seven years, and I thought it was an incredibly interesting opportunity at the time. So when they launched about a decade ago, STR 1.0 was you list anything on Airbnb and you do really well. And the reason was there was no supply. They didn't have enough inventory and there was a ton of demand. So you could literally be the worst host in the world and you did well. Well, because it was working so well, more money came into the space and we got to where we are today, which I'll call STR 2.0, which is people started taking it seriously. Hosts realized there was real money here. People started leaving jobs. I can't tell you, there's probably dozens, if not hundreds of people that left W2 jobs where they weren't happy to pursue short-term rental hosting as their full-time endeavor and doing quite well at it. And so they're quite talented. They're super hosts. The place is clean. The place is ready. They send you check-in instructions. They give you the bare minimum And like, that's not that challenging either for the host or for the institution. They can do that. The challenge becomes when you start to do these value added services where now you're creating hospitality, right? You're taking a soulless, empty, but clean sort of generic property and you're trying to develop something that's unique, that's exciting, that people are really thrilled about. And the reason you want to do that is so that people start to talk about it and share with their friends and give you five-star reviews. And then the business economics of it is when you have something that people are really excited about and passionate about, you have pricing power. You become a price setter as opposed to a price taker. So as more and more people enter the space and there's more supply, we at Stomp and the people that 
follow some of the methodology and teachings, we rise above that and we continue to command premiums, even though the rest of the marketplace is competing amongst themselves. Okay. And you also mentioned risks of STR. So one of the things that people talk about is the regulations. And you mentioned that, that you buy places where you're not going to have you know, an HOA cause an issue or a city ordinance. So can you talk about some of the risks, the regulation risk, and perhaps uncertain economy? Is that going to affect things? Can you just talk about some of the risks from self? Yeah. And it's really important because we start with risk management, right? So it doesn't really matter what the outsized return is. We measure the risk first. And so by way of example, if you go to a casino and you play whatever it is, roulette, and it's 36 to one, Chances are you're going to lose everything unless you get really lucky and then hit it on the first one and walk away. So we don't care what the outsized returns look like as much as we care about managing the downside risk. And it goes back to what Steve Schwartzman said to me, don't lose money. So the risks are definitely prevalent and you need to understand what they are and what risks you're willing to take. We don't take any regulatory risk. And one thing that many people do entering the space accidentally is they take a look and try and determine what the regulations are. If there's no rules prohibiting it, they mistakenly think that it's legal. And that couldn't be further from the truth. It just means it's yet to be legislated. So we seek and we teach people to invest in only places where it is, in fact, legal. And then I take two steps further than that as well. One is we like to have places that tax the short-term rental. So we believe that communities that benefit from the short-term rental are going to have a lot harder time unwinding the regulations or changing the regulations because they become dependent on it. Those short-term rental lodging taxes might pay for road improvements, schools, lighting, community centers, and almost no communities are running at a surplus. So consequently, if they were to change the regulatory regime around short-term rentals, they're in essence taking money out of their own coffer and they don't have enough in the first place. So it's not foolproof, but it's a great starting point. The other thing is we look for places where we're not seeing trends of changing patterns. So if it was legal and then they put in place permits and then they changed the number of permits and then they made it so you could only do it for a few years, things where people are starting to change the regulatory regime indicates that if they wanted, they might get it more strict, more highly regulated. And for us, we're running a business here. Real estate is a long-term investment. Think of it as a 30-year mortgage on most real estate. So if you don't have 30-year runway, then what are you really doing? And to your point, we, we recommend people don't invest in HOAs. HOAs are very, very quick to make decisions. It's based on who's on the board at a point in time and what their outlook is. And that's not a way to run a business. We do have investments personally and also in the fund that do have HOAs. But let me share with you sort of how we think about it. One short-term rental that I invest in that has an HOA, I sit on the board. So I have a say. The other HOA that we have in Stomp Capital, we own and manage the entire HOA. And it's highly unlikely that I'm going to regulate it and make it illegal. So I feel comfortable investing in those situations. But the average person, say, buying a condo with an HOA, I recommend that you don't do that. In certain instances, we've gone so far as to work with the community and the different lawyers and engineers and so on and so forth to actually write new zoning, making it legal. So we will be a very active and proactive investor to secure our rights and our investment. So you talked about briefly about debt 
Right. So what kind of debt and leverage can you get on these? Because as you said, these are like, you know, usually single family homes. I know you bought a hotel. I want to talk about that in a minute. But what kind of what kind of debt are you getting? Are you getting commercial debt? Are you getting personal loans? How, how does that work? Yeah. So the average person getting started in the short term rental space might take a personal loan as a vacation house or an investment property. But once you get past, say, four or five, even traditional lenders don't believe that you need a fifth vacation rental. And so they shy away. That was more important and prevalent earlier on in the short-term rental environment. What's happening now, and this is where, again, you ask how we find the uncrowded trades. We look at how easy is it to access capital? Like, can I go and get a bank loan or not? If we can't, instead of shying away from it, we spend more time on it. Like, that's good. That means that if we can't get a loan, no one else can either. That's not a crowded trade. Is it hard or easy to get insurance? Oh, they don't really insure short-term rentals. We don't view that as a roadblock or an obstacle. We view it as an opportunity. That's great. Once everything is really easy and anybody can do this, that indicates to us that it's crowded. So that's another example of how we kind of view these opportunities as contrarians. As it relates to the current debt environment, putting aside the credit situation that we're in right now and the recession that's looming, let's just talk about three months ago, four months ago, we're starting to see DSCR-based loans, so debt service coverage ratio loans, where they're not underwriting the individual buying them, right? You don't have to give tax returns. You don't have to provide income or W-2. They're underwriting the asset, much like multifamily. They're underwriting the cash flow. And what's kind of interesting about that is, and these are the little data points that we monitor and, and share with others, they didn't do it before because of vacancy and unknown pricing, where we started this conversation. How can I underwrite this? I'm a lender at a very conservative bank and we like our money back. So how am I possibly going to underwrite this risky short-term rental if I don't know how many nights it's going to be rented? And I also don't know what price. It's really hard for me to underwrite that. Sorry, sir, you can't take a loan. What they're realizing is, and I shared this with you earlier, the amount of debt service coverage ratio in the short-term rental market is actually two to three X a 12-month lease. So the vacancy risk is mispriced. The ADR or the price that they rent for is misunderstood. And in reality, if a $1,000 studio apartment or whatever on a 12-month lease was put on, say, Airbnb, what we're seeing today here in, I guess it's September 1st of 2022, if you know what you're doing, you're generating about two and a half to three times that. So $2,500 to $3,000 a month for that same studio or one bedroom repurposed, not into a long-term lease, but rather a short-term lease. So the lenders are starting to wake up and say, wait a minute, I actually have a safe loan because there's three times more cash flow. And all I need for this guy to repay my debt is cash flow. So more cash flow is less risky, not more risky. So we now have DSCR-based loans. And interestingly, very soon, we're going to have non-recourse loans similar to multifamily. Very few banks doing this, very few lenders doing it, but there is some, and that's a step in the right direction. And once again, once everybody can get non-recourse debt based on you know DSCR like you can in multifamily, that's an indication to us that the best is perhaps behind and going forward isn't going to be as good. I love how you talk about obstacles are the opportunity, right? Because when something's difficult, other people are just going to go find something else, right? They don't want the hard thing. But if you go after the hard thing, a lot of times that provides you an opportunity to go somewhere where nobody else is. And that's where the money is. 
Well, I couldn't agree more. And I like to say the following. Most people, again, look at individual assets and then to price it, they take a look at comps, right? Like show me what the building across the street did. Show me what this business did, whatever it is. Just show me the comp set. Well, when you have a comp set, that means you have competition. A lot of the things that we do don't have any comps. They're forward looking. And so the fact that there's no comps means that it's much less crowded. The average person isn't going to invest in that. And yet we have confidence and conviction in what it is that we're doing. We're making forward looking projections, meeting our own hurdles. And we love the fact that there's no comps because that means there's no competition. Yeah, that's great. And speaking of no competition, so how did you decide specifically to tailor the business to, I don't know if you call it upscale, but it's experiences, right? I mean, I've seen some of those properties. It's amazing that the activities are part of the experience, right? And you've branded this. Talk about what is that niche that you found? How did you decide to do that? And then how are you executing it? Because the way you're doing short-term rental is is not what we normally think of as short-term rental, right? It's a step above. Right. So one of the things that I always teach people in short-term rental university to do is build it for yourself. So if you've always wanted a lake house, go get your lake house, put it on Airbnb uh, during the off season, or if it's not rented, you increase your quality of life and going back to sort of experience and peak state and everything, your quality of life is enhanced and you're making some money. So everything that we're doing at Stom Capital is something that I like personally, and my bet is that other people will like it too. So far, we've been proven correct. The things that we're doing have a huge audience, maybe not in size, but in passion. And these experiences light people up, right? So if we can delight people and get them to feel alive, whether it's through kiting or surfing or skiing or anything like that, and create these memorable experiences, there's going to be raving fans. They're going to be telling other friends. They're going to give us five-star reviews. And in short, they make our job easier. But if we're just sort of generic and we don't light anybody up and we're just providing lodging, you're going to get competed down. There's going to be more people doing that generic approach. And then it becomes a race to the bottom. I'll do it for $100 a night. Well, I'll do it for 98. Well, I'll do it for 96. And all of a sudden, nobody's making any money. My own personal life and lifestyle and what I love doing, I live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I'm a passionate skier. I'm trying to prove my surfing. I'm trying to get better at kiteboarding. I love being outdoors. I love being in the water. I love that adrenaline rush. All of that stuff gets me really excited. And if you think about finding an affinity group, whether it's, you know, stamp collecting or bird watching or kite surfing, it doesn't matter what it is, but niche down and appeal to a very specific group, know who's coming and what they're doing and build for that and market that and create these relationships and this loyalty with people just like other big brands do, right? Like try and get me to switch from Apple to Samsung. It's not happening. You could give me the Samsung for free and charge me 10 times more for my iPhone. I'm still going to buy the iPhone. So you have to know who your target audience is and you niche down, you create a brand around it, which I've been teaching everybody as well. The average person in short-term rentals right now is just buying a mishmash of whatever, wherever it is, or worse, they're buying all in the exact same location because they take comfort from the fact that like it's working on 123 Main Street in Iowa. And so they're going to get the place across the street and the place down the block and they fool themselves into believing that there's operating efficiencies and that remote hosting is hard. But what they're really doing is doubling down on risk and tripling down on risk, and they're not diversifying at all. And so the opposite is actually true. You should be creating a diversified portfolio that has some consistency, some similarity, create a brand around it so that the person who's really into bird watching can go watch birds in the fall and in the spring in different locations. But you yourself have to be a bird watcher 
to know that, right? You can't research it and like pretend to be an expert. If you're a really avid bird watcher, then go pick your favorite places, have eight different short-term rentals around the world for different whatever birds, seasons. I don't know enough about it to speak intelligently. I'm just making an example. But you can see now how somebody maybe a binocular company, maybe, I don't know, the Audubon Society, somebody would say, wow, this is spectacular. This person rolled up the eight best places to go watch birds migrate and this and that and the other. You've created some brand equity and real value and the opportunity to exit. Whereas if you just buy everything in one central location or with no rhyme or reason, just because the backward looking data look good, what do you have? You have a collection of individual assets that have no greater value. Point here is to create a portfolio where the whole has more value than the sum of the parts. That's really interesting. So I guess the question is, do you have people who go to your one location and they have that great experience and then they go to one of your other properties in a different location? Has that been happening? So that's the opportunity. We're so early in this opportunity that what we're doing right now is either building to short-term rent, right? So we've all heard about build to rent and that's very popular now. We take it one step further we're uh, developers in about half the portfolio. We develop build to short-term rent properties. And the way that you build a short-term rental property is very different than a traditional home. It can be resold as a traditional home. It's got the same zoning and so on and so forth. But since we know who's coming and what they're doing there, we build for that. So we have one property in our flagship property at Edge Camp Sporting Club in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which has a tremendous opportunity set for corporate retreats. There's multiple sitting areas. So you could have Let's say the BMW company was having a corporate offsite. They could have sales meet in this sitting area, this living room, and they could have marketing in this other one, and they could do their exercises. Then they come convene in a larger area. So we build these things as opposed to retrofit. And when we buy assets that are already existing, like you mentioned, the Southampton Hotel, 62-key hotel, we will literally gut renovate the interiors. We're working with incredible designers like Jonathan Adler to come in and put it on brand. And then we're working with incredible branding agencies to create a brand that ties them all together. So we're so early in all this, we have yet to do exactly what you said, but I'm highly confident in a year from now or two years from now, you'll ask me the same question and I'll say, yes, we had a surfer that was down in our Costa Rica property that we said, hey, have you ever tried kite surfing? And they were interested in it. Then they came to the Outer Banks property, said, hey, you got you do this and this. Do you also ski? Come visit us in Wyoming or Idaho, wherever we end up buying a another ski area, but that's the whole point, right? Cross-selling, cross-promotion, and then also owning the relationship. So we actually do about 70% direct bookings in some of our place. So we're not reliant on Airbnb or Verbo or the traditional platforms because then you're just a cog in their machine. We want to actually own the relationships. And the easiest way to think about that is the difference between being an Amazon reseller where you're completely, you know, not the the buyers completely anonymous. You don't even get their email. Versus having a Shopify store where I can now send to you and say, hey, you like this product? You might like that product. Or did you know we just announced this launch? So that's the goal. And you mentioned the hotel. I'm I'm interested in that because a hotel is by definition a short term rental, but it's a hotel, right? When you think of Airbnb, Verbo, short-term rentals, you're thinking of a single-family home and maybe even a really large one like you, you, you built on in North Carolina. But how does a hotel fit into what you're doing? Because someone's not going to rent out the whole place, right? So it's not a home. Just tell me your thinking on that. It, it's intriguing. Absolutely. And here's a way that we've expressed the short-term rental opportunity set taking advantage of the regulatory risk. 
right? So let's tell a little story about the Hamptons, which is where I happen to be sitting right now. We have a corporate offsite starting on Tuesday after Labor Day. We have our branding team coming. We have our design team and entire team is going to be on location. And so we're going to start to actually renovate this project. But in the Hamptons here, there's very little lodging. There's a lot of single family homes and short-term rentals are actually illegal. There's very few hotels. And so consequently, there's a ton of demand for overnight lodging, but there's very little inventory or supply of overnight lodging. So what we've done is we've gone up the zoning quality. And instead of waiting for them to make short-term rentals legal for single family homes, we've purchased grandfathered short-term rental zoning, that'll never change. The county needs this lodging. They very much approve of what it is that we're doing. So we've bought short-term rental zoning that's legal and likely forever in perpetuity without any future competition because they will not build another hotel here. So the first thing that we did was buy the zoning. The second question, which I think is more relevant to what you are getting at, is how do we make this into a short-term rental? And the reality is, going back to what I shared earlier, most hospitality and most hotels throw labor at problems, right? So you have somebody at the front desk to check you in, and somebody has an issue, they pick up the phone and they answer, and you you send somebody over there. So it's all about being reactive, having people on staff that are able to be there when an issue arises. The short-term rental approach to hospitality is quite the opposite. Again, we know who's coming and what they're doing. We can enable self-check-in. And what we have at Stom Capital is a centralized concierge. So we could have the phone answered wherever in the middle of the country, and they can help you whether you're in the Outer Banks or you're in Southampton or you're in Nosara, Costa Rica. And then we have like one say, general manager or property manager that can come and facilitate. But we don't have 10 people standing around waiting for the phone to ring. We're anticipatory and we try and design everything so that it's comfortable and intuitive. And it's almost like you've been there before and everything just works. That, that's really interesting because that could change you know, how hotels work in the future. Because now that we're able to automate so much, I, I didn't think of this until you just said it, but what do you need someone standing there in the desk waiting for if someone has a problem, right? It's just, they're not doing much, right? No, they're not doing much. And we know because we currently run the existing asset, right? We bought this asset, it's operating, it's cash flowing, it's very, very accretive. So we love the cash flow and we continue to run and operate the business while we meet with the teams and so on. And in a year or two, it'll be on brand and it'll be different. But in the meantime, it's a cash flowing hotel, which we appreciate very much. And so do do our investors. But the reality of it is there's very low likelihood that the hospitality industry actually does it themselves because their culture is to throw labor at it. You need somebody to come and disrupt it and say, I've never done this before, but if I was going to start from scratch and I had these automated locks and I had the central concierge and I'm like a frequent traveler myself, so I know what I like. And what I would share with you is there's a time and a place for full service, right? Like I love a five-star, four-seasons experience as much as anyone else, but I don't love it every single time, right? Either want to pay for it every single time, or there's instances where they're in my way. Like, I don't need to say hello 12 times entering and exiting the hotel. That doesn't benefit me particularly. There's times where I want it and I want to feel like I'm being pampered and taken care of, but most often I just want to enter and exit and maybe be left alone. Or better yet, in the STR 3.0 world, I want to be surrounded by community, people that have similar interests to me. So as I come and go, I'm saying hi to this new person that I just met that also is a bird watcher or a kiter. Now we're all doing the same sort of thing. And that takes on its own separate energy where hotels, once again, 
it's totally anonymous. They don't care who comes. They don't know who's coming. They don't know why they're coming. And so you just enter and exit. You say hello to the elevator person, the concierge person, the valet person, the front desk person. And then like, it's not necessary anymore. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. So if I'm a passive investor, we do multifamily and all kinds of other asset classes. And and we focus on the sponsor, the operator, and we vet them to make sure that we're comfortable with them. And then we, you know, that's maybe 75, 80% of the analysis. And then maybe the last 20% is analyzing the market and the deal. Right. So if someone was going to invest in STR with, with Stomp or with, with anyone, how should passive investors vet the operators, because most of them are going to be new, right? Because it's a new asset class, really. How do I analyze a deal to know, okay, yeah, this is one I want to get into? So you should do a very thorough background check on any sponsor, no matter what the asset class is. And we have people that can you know, conduct background checks and criminal checks and Google checks. I mean, spend as much time as necessary to get totally comfortable that whoever it is, is ethical and has no, you know, ghosts in the skeletons in the closet. So that's very, very important. The other thing is take a look at the entity and the structure that they have. So we're SEC registered. We provide audited financials, which means that, you know, like there's people really monitoring and looking over our shoulders. We have an administrator. We use Juniper Square. So it's a second set of eyes. And so, you know, that's the first pass. It's like, what is the structure? Who is the individual or individuals behind the offering, and then take a look at your alignment. So I have more than $10 million co-invested. I'm the single largest investor in the fund. I anticipate I will be for a lengthy period of time, but I'm invested side by side with the investors. And so I have a real capital commitment to this. And the way that I kind of view this space is this is what I'm doing with my capital. And I'm inviting others who believe in our vision and the opportunity set to co-invest with us. That's very different than than many sponsors who are doing it as a job, a profession. Maybe they're raising assets and they get fees. And I mean, look, we definitely collect fees. Make no mistake about it. We live in a capitalist society and we don't apologize. It allows us to get some of the best talent on the planet, which we literally have the best team I've ever worked with. And I've worked at firms like Blackstone and Ramius and others. The team that we have right now at Stomp Capital is, in my personal opinion, superior to any team I've ever worked on. And they've left incredible jobs, incredible opportunities, and we pay them commensurate with their skill set. And our goal is to actually pay them even more as we become even more successful. So find out if your interests are aligned and what the GP's capital commitment is. Uh, Personally, I think a small commitment is a, a flag either of inexperience, right? Like they haven't generated wealth themselves or not a belief in the opportunity, or they just are doing this to collect fees. Okay. Yeah, that's great. And it's always interesting to get into a new asset class as an investor. I do chase the shiny object. I have that. And I I try to invest in some of the boring stuff, but it's always interesting to put some of your capital in new things or speculative things or, or just new interesting asset classes. And it seems like this one is really poised to take off and being in on something that is so unique and disruptive is pretty interesting to me. Well, I hear you on the shiny object syndrome, and I think we all suffer from that to a degree, but I think we can intellectually analyze whether this is shiny object or it's a real opportunity. And so let me give you a couple of thoughts on that. One, single family homes are the largest real estate asset class there is. And yet I went to a professional real estate investment conference where somebody put up a slide of the I don't know, nine different flavors of real estate investing, and it was industrial, retail, commercial, office, multifamily, blah, blah, blah. You know what was missing? Wasn't even on this professional real estate investors. There was not even a line item for short-term rentals. 
So that's how much market share this is commanding in like a professional real estate institutional investor's mind. Zero right now. I think we can all agree it shouldn't be zero. You know, maybe it's 1% or 5% or 10% over time, but zero is the wrong allocation. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is in every one of those flavors that we just talked about, the only thing that matters from a valuation perspective is net operating income, right? I mean, if it's in better shape and it's in good shape, you might pay more off of the net operating income, but really that's what you're underwriting is the net operating income. Yet the single largest asset class in real estate where there's zero institutional investors, net operating income doesn't even factor into the valuation whatsoever. In fact, if you go and ask a broker, hey, is this house uh, on Airbnb? They, they won't know, or they'll say, I don't think so, or they say, I don't know, let me find out. And then it turns out, yeah, it's on Airbnb and the thing made $250,000 last year, but you can still buy it as if it had zero net operating income. Like that's mind blowing. That's not right. Why would I buy a house that has zero net operating income for the exact same dollar amount just because it's across the street versus the one that's generating $250,000 a year, proven, hey, taxes on it. So that's how early we are. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to connect the dots. Like I think going forward, short-term rentals will command some market share. They'll be on the next slide five years forward. That percentage might be 3% or 5% or 10%. And short-term rentals will trade based on net operating income. That's gold right there. That's fantastic. It's a great way to look at it. I, I love it. So we were over time because this was just so interesting and I appreciate that. The last question I ask is what's a great podcast that you like to listen to? It can be real estate or otherwise, if you're a podcast listener. You know, I'm not a podcast listener because I'm incredibly busy creating podcasts and creating other content and so on. But I do believe when you sent me the question before you asked about a book, and I'm going to share with you a book that I recommend to my kids and to everyone who asks, and it's really easy to read. It's a lot of fun. It was written, I don't know, about the turn of the century in the early 1900s. And it's about the psychology of investing. And it's as relevant back then as it was today. And it's called Reminisces of a Stock Operator. So pick that up and take a look at sort of boom and bust and contrarian investing, because when things get really hot, that's when you should be selling. When things, when nobody wants them, you know, Warren Buffett talks about buy when others are fearful and be greedy when, or be greedy when others are fearful. Same sort of concept, but this book was written, I guess, a hundred years ago or more, and it's still very, very relevant and it's easy to read, but it helps shape sort of investment thinking in a way that you may not read or comprehend if you don't really like investing reading. That's great. I haven't heard of that one. And I will definitely, that's my next stop after this is to order that book and, and check it out. So if listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about Stomp Capital, what's the best way to do that? So the first thing I would ask is if you're on Twitter, follow me at I'm Richard Fertig, and then you can go to stompcapital.com, learn an awful lot about the investment thesis and our properties and what we're doing. If you fill out a, a quick form and put, give us your email, you'll get on our distribution list. We've got thought pieces that we pen. They're starting to get picked up by press and we're being interviewed as a thought leader in this space. So the content that we're generating is extremely high quality and I think very, very valuable. And if you're interested, we can set up a one-on-one -on -one and have prospective LPs learn more. We have a whole team that handles all that. So those are the easiest things. And if you want to do it yourself, just go check out YouTube, Short-Term Rental University. It's a great place to start. And again, I'm very proud of that body of work. You'll see me going through a variety of uh, changes like, a, you know, I was in the cocoon and then I'm a butterfly and I've got long hair and short hair and you'll watch the whole transition. But in short, 
Just listen to the ideas and the methodology and the concepts and think about whether the stuff that I was saying five years ago is proven true or not. I think it'll help investors recognize that what we're doing here is uh, extremely well thought out, very compelling to the tune that it's my single largest investment and likely will continue to increase in size, not decrease. We're so early now, as I just laid out, that um, I can't think of a more compelling real estate play or any other play, to be honest. This has been fascinating. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and we'll definitely follow you and see where you go next. It's it's a great, uh, just exciting to, to watch and, and learn about. Terrific. Well, it's my pleasure and I appreciate your inviting me and the listeners uh, time. So thank you very much. And please reach out if you have any questions or DM me at, on Twitter at I'm Richard Fertig. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks. That was a really interesting podcast with Richard. You know, he started out by he values life experiences and he, and he learned that right out of college by um, instead of going to get a job right away, he went and skied 100 days. And that's just awesome. You know, that's just it, it's great to have that. We're doing this for a reason, right? We're trying to generate wealth and we're doing all this, but it, it's to have life experiences. And, and that's what your time freedom gives you and, and money freedom gives you that. And so he's really into that. And that's cool to hear. I really liked how he talked about missing out is okay, losing money is not. And that is a, you know, we get so many deals come across our desk and they're all super interesting. And, and sometimes you just have to say missing out is okay. And what um, MC Laubscher said, the joy of missing out, JOMO instead of FOMO, right? You take pride in, okay, I didn't take that opportunity and maybe it'll be a home run, maybe it won't, but you don't need to get into every one of them. And key is don't lose money, but it's okay to, to miss out on opportunities. You don't have to feel like you need to jump into every single one. And I thought it was brilliant how he's looking for Airbnb or short-term rental properties in places that will tax him. He wants to pay that tax because what that does is that creates incentive for the community, the, the local government, to want to keep him and keep his regulations in place so they allow short-term rentals because they're going to become dependent on that tax revenue. And so he doesn't mind contributing and paying those taxes because he knows that's going to make it harder to change the rules and get rid of short-term rentals. And so he seeks that out. It's the same where if he sees a problem, homeowner association, Airbnb, short-term rentals, people don't like homeowner association. So what does Richard do? He gets on the board or he buys all the properties in the homeowners association. So in effect, he is the homeowners association. So that de-risks everything. And it's just a brilliant strategy. And that leads into really the most impactful thing I think he said is obstacles are opportunities, right? Because if there's an obstacle, most people are going to go towards it, see it and be like, okay, I'm moving on to something else because it's too hard to worry about the zoning or worry about the taxes or whatever the issue is. And, and it's, that's life, right? Obstacles are going to be there. But if you can overcome them and get through them, there aren't going to be as many people on the other side. And that means that there's going to be more opportunity for you to accomplish whatever you're looking to accomplish. So I think Richard has a great mindset on a lot of these things. And just listening to him, you get a lot of wisdom. We learned a lot about short-term rentals and, and a lot about how to position assets, but more, if you really listen, and I'll probably listen to this a couple times, you're going to get a lot of things about mindset, how to value life experiences, missing out is okay, obstacles are opportunities, that's all gold, all great stuff. I'm definitely going to be paying attention to Richard and see how he grows and watch his assets and, and see what happens because it's certainly an interesting story 
and I, I want to see how it turns out. So that was a great show listening to Richard. I really appreciate him being on. And that is all we have for today. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.